Welcome to Crushing It, a podcast with notes of knowledge, hints of hilarity, fun forward, and super cheesy, which always pairs well with wine. That's good. Mm. <laughs> a little bit of class goes a long way. That's all I'm saying. Really pleasurable mouthfeel. On a scale of like prison hooch to a Willamette Valley sunrise, I would rate this a solid seven. Girl knows what she wants. <laughs> they need to put wine in pounders. I'd like to get my hands on that Methuselah. What is that? <laughs> oh, shit about this wine. <laughs> hey, welcome to Crushing It, another episode. Woo, Crushing It. I'm Sarah. I'm Carly. And we're so excited to have you here <laughs> yet again. Thanks for following along, folks. We do appreciate it. We do. This week is really interesting. There's a lot of interesting pieces to it. Um, we are visiting Abbott Claim. Yeah. And I know, I know that in the last episode, we promised you secret GPS coordinates to get there. But really, you just... You can just look up their address at abbottclaim.com. But it is quite a bit out of the way, I guess. And there is no sign. There is not a sign. So it's and still kind of a show secret up. society. For sure. You'll definitely feel like you're part of a secret society when you're there because the experience is so cool. So cool. I seriously cannot stop talking about it with people. I know you're telling everybody. I'm telling secrets. everybody and it's just because I'm so excited about it and I want everybody to experience it. <sighs> everybody just, should. It is really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so we were hosted by Andrew Dirks and this guy, if anybody knows how to host, it is Andrew. He is the man. Holy cow. He is, <laughs> he is a host and a half. Andrew was lovely, and I can't wait to introduce him to other people so that he can host them. That's how right. he's, just, he's amazing. He is amazing. His um, whole, like the bedrock of his whole philosophy is about hospitality, which you will hear. And so he knows how to treat you right. That is for sure. That was a treat. So I'm excited to go back. Yeah, yeah I know you are. You keep talking about it. <laughs> Now, he is so good that he, um, like during the episode, we used phrases like Jedi and magic and these kinds of things. You won't hear it in the episode because well, a lot of it something. had, <laughs> you do, you do. And we might as well cut the, um, the secrets and surprises. He, and, and his stories, we couldn't even keep all of his stories, which is actually good for you because when you go there, then um, you will have an extra treat because he's got some amazing stories. That's true. We'll leave some things for him to talk about, but Andrew definitely just the stories. I mean, I was engulfed in every single detail he was giving us. So he is a awesome storyteller. But yes, when you go, he will have plenty more of where this came from. Yeah, absolutely. And his story itself, like how he got to where he is now, is different than any of the stories that we've heard so far. 
And it really just is a story of like focus and passion and drive. And it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I'm shocked. The journey that he took, like you said, so different. I mean, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I don't typically sit around a table chatting with Michelin star people. And he's a Michelin star, if not more than one. <laughs> if um if he's not he will be by the next time that we visit but he um this guy studied for the psalm certification on his own and passed i have not heard of anybody doing that i just don't get it he's, <laughs> he's an anomaly this guy convinced abbott claim to hire him and open a tasting room during covid yeah. Uh, also, remember how other places are having to shut down and take time away from doing what they're doing? He has figured out how to open a place that is going to be and is already so successful. I mean, Jedi is true. It's amazing. It is amazing. Um, I have to tell you some of the... <laughs> tell me. Tell me right went... now. I was trying to find good pictures. I sent you one that I think is fun, but mm. I was trying to find a picture of his band. <laughs> so <laughs> this guy turns out... is everything. It's yeah. Awesome. It turns out it's not on the Google. Um, maybe Kyla has one that she would send our way. You haven't met Kyla. You need to meet Kyla. You would love Kyla, but. Maybe Kyla will send us a picture of the band. That'd be pretty fun. I love that. Anyhow, we got so wrapped up in the stories that we didn't get a chance to taste the Chardonnay while we were there. And Andrew, being the magic maker that he is, knew that Carly liked Chardonnay. So nice. He's so nice. <laughs> He's so nice. And so he sent us home with a bottle which we are now enjoying. How's your Chardonnay, Carly? I am getting down with the Chardonnay. It's so delicious. It's everything that I needed from a Chardonnay. I love it. I love it. I can't wait to go back and enjoy this with the surprise that Andrew has. <laughs> yeah, if we needed an excuse to go back, it would be to go get more Chardonnay but we don't even need an excuse to go back. We're already ready. Oh, I'm ready. I'm I know ready. you already RSVP. <laughs> yes, twice. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, pour yourself a glass of Chardonnay. Settle in. This guy has a story for you. A few stories. Yes. And if stories. you're not drinking the Chardonnay, get some Pinot Noir because that's what we were sipping on during the interview and little Pinot Noir and a few excellent stories went perfectly together. Absolutely. Love it. Mm -hmm. So good. We made it to Abbott Claim. Yeah. Yes, we did. We're here with Andrew Dirks. <laughs> Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> he does awkward clapping. I'm yeah. the woo girl. <laughs> You'll never guess, Carly, yes. how I know Andrew. Please 
tell me it starts yeah. with an A. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I met Andrew through Anami, where he worked. Wait, did you come first? Kyla came Kyla, first. Kyla was there first. It was... Uh, Kyla it, is your wife. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it would have been spring of 2013. She might have started there actually in like November of 2012 because mm -hmm. um, we got married in June of 2012. She was going to graduate school and the whole thing and like the way that I explain it to guests is that, you know, she was working at Anime a couple of days a month really uh, through graduate school. And it was just like a for fun thing that she did when she wasn't at school and, you know, she got, you know, a tiny little paycheck, but then they, she got paid in wine, which was a really nice thing to help get her through graduate school, was yes, having a nice little, little flow of wine. <laughs> so yeah, she probably started there in the fall of 2012. And then it was the, it was either the spring release party of March of 2013, or like, not the White Kava event, but like there, there was some event that always happened to anime in like that early part of the spring. Um, it was White Kava. It, it could have been, yeah, because I remember, and that, that was the first day I was ever there, and Kyla basically recruited me to come and, like, carry cases to people's car and pour water and dump out dump buckets, and, like, that's what I did the entire time I was there the whole first day, and then I got paid in, like, six bottles of wine or whatever at the, at the <laughs> nice. end of it, but, um, but, yeah, Kyla definitely came before me 100% and brought me into the world, and at, at the time, too, like, I, uh, as you may or may not remember, like, I uh, went to college for music composition, dropped out of college to be in a band and like played, you know, in a band with one of my best friends in the world and did that for many years. What worked was the band name? It's not important. I really <laughs> want to know. No, it's, it was terrible. Now I definitely well, want to no, know. Well, no, no, so like, uh, like. Oh, not important. That's yeah, well, no, like many, uh, like many people who start bands in their teens and early mm. 20s, you go through a lot of different band names because totally. you're like, oh, that sucks. We're going to change the name to this. This is great. And then that sucks. We're going to change the name. But no, my, uh, my friend Gabe and I, uh, we, um, we, uh, uh, our band was called My Rescue. That was like the last name that we were on for a couple years or whatever when I, I'd finished school. But, um, uh, but yeah, so I, I did that. And then my, my day job while I was doing music was I worked for um, various cell phone companies. I started at Radio Shack and then worked for Smart Wireless, this little kiosk in the mall, and then worked for um, Singular before it was AT&T, and then worked for Verizon. And then my last job in wireless was I worked for Cricket Communications as like a national retail director. So I did all of these, like um, like the prepaid packaged phones. I worked as like the you know indirect manager for Cricket for doing every like Best Buy, Walmart, Radio Shack, Target, whatever, from like Vancouver down to Salem, essentially, um, which was like a good job, like on paper, but it just sucked, you know? It was like, it wasn't the kind of sales that I enjoyed. And, <laughs> you know, it was just a day job that turned into something more as like music things faded and like, you know, you get promoted, you make a little bit more money and all of a sudden you carve out a little life for yourself and got married and, you know, whatever. But, um, but yeah, I was doing that and then quit at the end of 2012 because, um, again, I just didn't enjoy it really. And I was going to like go back to school or do something. But, um, but yeah, and it was that March of 2013 that I worked that event. And then I worked at um, Cathedral Ridge Winery and Tasting Room for like oh, wow. one month in like Dundee. In, oh, okay. Yeah, they have a little tasting room there. And like at the time, like I thought, I didn't think I was going to like get a job in wine because I was like, well, you have to be qualified. You have to know something about wine. And like, oh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> sure don't, because you're right. Hilari <laughs> hilarious way to uh, uh, get in. But, uh, but you know, I, I worked there for just a month. And then Aaron uh, at Anime was like, hey, you know, it's like we could use somebody over here. Why don't you just come work here? And I was like, 
yes, I would love that. Because so, <laughs> Kylo was already there. And so yeah, that, that like summer of 2013 is when I really, really got started and did tasting room as many hours as they would give me. And then uh, I worked Harvest that, that year um, with Thomas and Andy. And um, that was really fun. And like Harvest was basically one of those things where it's like everyone, everyone like uh, heralded Harvest as like this really difficult thing. It's like, oh, it's 10 weeks of 18 hour days and you're cold and wet the whole time and like you don't want to do it it sucks like you know it's not for everybody like you know so if you do it just like strap in you can't quit if you do it like again everyone pumped it up to be this huge huge thing and um that automatically like drew me to it where i was like Psh, like i want to do it then i want to, like because uh it was fun working in the tasting room but like um that year or it might have been the year before that's when the, like the psalm movies came out and stuff too or at least the first one did and like i was already kind of gravitating more towards restaurants uh in terms of getting experience but um when uh when i heard about harvest as an opportunity i wanted to do it at least to like kind of like have that stripe on my sleeve kind of thing and be like well i did i worked to harvest um even if it was just going to be the one time and even if i wasn't going to production at that early early time and me learning about wine and getting into the business of it like uh it was important to me to at least to like do the thing that everyone said was so hard. Um, so it was a, it was a fun experience doing it at Anime and it wasn't as tough as everyone made it out to be, but like you definitely got some punch down <laughs> arms and you know, totally. <laughs> you definitely were cold and wet the whole time. So it was a lot of Have you ever done under armor. <laughs> I have not. My other job schedule keeps me from yeah. doing oh, a harvest. Yeah. I would like to. I would not like to. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You would not like to. Well, again, you know, it's, funny. it's like one of those little like, you know, rites of passage styles of thing where like I love talking about um, like working the sorting table and being uh, the person who has to like stand up on the ladder and like rake the fruit from the, uh, you know, ton tank onto the sorting table and you're like surrounded in a cloud of yellow jackets, but you just have to like black it out and just like get into a Zen state where you're just like, you know, raking <laughs> out the grapes and hoping for the best and just, you know, they land on you here and there, but you just have to put it out of your mind and <laughs> hope to not get stung. Wow. Crazy. Yes. Very <laughs> meditative. <laughs> yeah. After harvest was over, um, it's funny, we did our harvest dinner thing at um, Bistro Maison in McMinnville. And I remember it was, you know, it was a small little team of us, um, but um, that was like the first time I ever had um, Chablis, which I didn't realize was Chardonnay at the time. And uh, that's something I always tell people in the tasting room and stuff too, is when I talk about myself is like, you know, I, I really do remember like starting from ground zero and not being able to name a grape and like not knowing a, absolutely anything about wine whatsoever. But, um, but yeah, I remember that dinner and having Chablis and not knowing it was Chardonnay. Cause um, you know, when you, get started in a tasting room in the Willamette Valley. It's like, there's like this little California Willamette Valley rift of like what they do and what we do and of who's course. better and like tribalism, you know, totally <laughs> going to the extreme there and stuff. Um, so I'd only really tasted wines from the Willamette Valley at that point. So, um, but I remember tasting wines at that, at that dinner and it was really interesting to kind of get opened up to the whole world of wine, which is what really kind of drove me to the restaurant side of things was like, um, after starting the Lima Valley, it was like, well, what else is out there? You know, restaurants just seem like the best way to go get exposed to a lot of other stuff. So I, my first restaurant job ever was at 1910 Maine in Forest Grove. Kyle and I were living in Forest Grove when she was going to graduate school at Pacific. And she actually got me that job too. So Kyla has been instrumental in like wow. these little steps of my career. She's like your manager. There, there's more too. Wait like, man. like the, yeah, 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 super <laughs> wingman. <laughs> for sure. But um, Have but, you met? 
it was uh, yeah, it was like it was a few blocks away from our house, and Kyla would go in there every now and then, either after school or whatever. And um, she got friendly with one of the bartenders, and they needed a person to work the bar and uh, uh, be a server. And she was like, oh, well, my husband works at a tasting room. He could probably do it. And like, I had no business being behind a bar. <laughs> like, I didn't know how to mix drinks at all. But that was one of those like first entries into restaurant work where, uh, yeah, I had the uncomfortable challenges of trying to make cocktails and I didn't know how and working from restaurant, um, you know, like little flashcards for drink recipes oh, and yeah. stuff. And, not knowing how to wait at tables and wait a section when you really didn't know what I was doing. Like that was a really uncomfortable kind of experience, but I also really liked it though. Like it was really fun working with the kitchen and um, I always liked the speed of restaurant work, like and the speed of being behind a bar, which is something that we got to know really well at Anime was mm -hmm. like hosting when you're three people deep and having a patio and also trying to sell while also trying to like share information. So like that was all really um, interesting, but I only worked at that place for a couple of months yeah. and I ended up working at um, Watson Hall, which was this small little bar owned by the same ownership as DeCarli restaurant in Beaverton, which is like an yes. Italian restaurant. Uh, Jenna DeCarli was like kind of the general manager owner there and her husband was the chef, I, his name escapes me, but um, back then the Watson Hall place had like just opened and similarly I got thrust into like, um, like a server role that was the first place I learned like what a Sazerac was and what a Manhattan was and like all these little cocktails that um, kind of connected with the world of fine wine was also like fine cocktails and they had a nice little wine list because um, again they were connected with that restaurant so they, did, they had a little bit of reciprocity there with um, the, the programs um, and yeah I, I worked there for three or four months and that's when I got a job at uh, the Dundee Bistro in Dundee and the whole big reason I took that job was uh, again, like I was like interested in the sommelier route, having you know that movie just come out, and again getting deeper into wine study. I passed my intro sommelier exam in March of uh, 2014, so that was like pretty much a year from when I first started at Anime and everything. And uh, at the Dundee Bistro, they had a real life sommelier who worked there, and I was like, oh my god, like I got to go work at this place that actually has a sommelier on staff who was this guy named Chris Berry, who had been there for like 10 years, was like a server sommelier, um, very knowledgeable. He was a great like kind of like first little mentor where he like poured me like little bits of wine here and there that I would taste. But like, that was a great place too, to like, again, like get used to like the speed of restaurant work, making my like working uh, sections where, you know, you would have to make wine by the glass recommendations and then execute that very quickly. There was no bartender there, so you had to make your own cocktails. So like, that was a really difficult place to to work when you're like, again, like inexperienced and just getting started. So it's, um, it was it was challenging in a lot of ways um, and really kind of, uh, I guess, kind of got me started into wanting to work at a place that was really high level. And it was, I guess, like in December of 2014, uh, I had passed my certified sommelier exam like that month, or probably actually it might have been the beginning of, or the in November at some point. But, um, but that was like a huge, huge moment for me passing that certified sommelier exam through the court. Because again, like I was working at the bistro and like didn't know anybody who cared about that kind of thing. And like uh, I tasted wines like by myself, read books by myself. I just was doing everything alone. And I felt really, really lucky to pass that exam because it was like it was up in Seattle and like, you know, I was serving master sommeliers, doing like a written test and a service test and a tasting test. and. It was um, uh, 
I was very much in over my head, but um, you know, I, again, luckily, luckily enough, was able to like put in enough work to pass that. And after that happened, um, uh, I started really looking towards, you know, San Francisco, New York, like other places where I could like kind of continue on through the restaurant world even more. And yeah, Kyle and I went to the beach with my dad and his wife for like a New Year's Christmas, just kind of fun little trip. And we uh, were like walking on the beach and talking about how like, oh, you know, San Francisco would be great. It's, you know, it's on the West Coast. It's not too far away from home. That could be a really cool place for us to go. Like we should think about that as a destination. It was probably January 12th or 13th or so where Kyla like sent me an email from a Craigslist post that she saw uh, in San Francisco where it was like, oh, new restaurant opening in San Francisco, uh, Chef Murad Lalu, new restaurant, Alan Murray, master sommelier, doing the wine program, you know, looking for all restaurant staff. And Kyla sent this to me and I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, <laughs> like, you know, we, we just talked about this like a week ago. Like, I'm not sure yeah. entirely, like, let's go. Like, I don't know if we're ready, but oh yeah, very much so. It was like, you know, <laughs> it was, it, it was very, like you said you wanted it. Here yeah, it, it was kismet-ish, you know, in yeah, that way. Yeah, but, no um, joke. yeah, it was, so it was bananas, but I, I was huge to like push back and was just like, whoa, 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 like we're not ready to move. Like, I don't know if we're ready to pull the trigger on this, whatever. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll send them an application or I'll, I'll respond to the Craigslist ad just for the sake of it. So I sent an email uh, back and was just like, hey, heard about the openings, love to talk about a position, blah, blah, blah. Here's a resume. And like, that was it. And I got responded to the very next day and was, uh, and they basically were like, hey, you know, we'll see you later today if you can make it down here for an interview. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm actually up in Oregon. I don't know if you saw my address on the resume Tomorrow? or whatever, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I was like, you know what? And this was a Thursday. I remember, um, uh, actually, I think it was a Wednesday and they were like, Hey, can you be here, you know, tomorrow at noon? And I'm like, no, but Hey, you know what? I can get there Friday. I can figure it out. And I credit carded a plane ticket and a hotel and went down there on Friday and, uh, and met with the general manager. And, uh, I sat with him for like, you know, a little over an hour, you know, just going through normal interview shit. And, and then he was like, well, yeah, if you want to, if you want to make the move down here, we'll bring you on as a server. And I was like, okay, great. So, uh, yeah, again, that was like the second week of January and we, you know, pulled the trigger and left our current place. And I was moved down there February 1st. Like oh my gosh. we, yeah, it all happened really, really fast and all came from a Craigslist post. It was all right place, right time kind of situation, but I was, you didn't see that coming. Wow. Yeah, and it was it was crazy and like making moves <laughs> quickly. Well, yeah, it was, so like it, the whole thing like and as it continues on, you'll see. But it's like it's all been like this crazy big like sequencing thing where it's like I was never at any place for very long. It's like like started in me and was there for six months and then worked at a restaurant and I still worked at Anime a little bit here and there, and then moved from one restaurant to another restaurant, then moved from that restaurant to a better restaurant. Was there for six months, took a manager job, and then, oh, got a job at a restaurant in San Francisco. I moved there in two weeks. And then I, uh, you know, getting used to San Francisco was like a whole other thing. Like moving down there was, was nuts. And I drove down there and, you know, with everything that I own packed in the car. And Kyla was doing her externship in Medford at the time. So like we were going to be like living, we were already living apart a little bit and she was coming back on weekends and 
Um, the whole plan was like, you know, I was going to move down there. We were still going to be apart, but it was, it was like almost equidistant where like it was five hours away from San Francisco was like five, six hours away from Medford. Medford was five, six hours away from Forest Grove. So it wasn't that much of a difference. Um, but until she finished uh, her externship, she was going to stay there and then move down and join me. But, um, yeah, it was a, it was a really crazy transition because San Francisco is an expensive city and Working at, um, so the restaurant, it was called Murad. Uh, it was Chef Murad Lulu's first name. He had a, a restaurant called Aziza on Geary Street, which is still there today, um, that had had a Michelin star. And this like new place that he was opening was gonna be like his new baby, where they were gonna like, gonna go wow. for a Michelin star again. And um, that was like one of the biggest, like, uh, I don't wanna say rude awakening, cause that puts like a negative connotation to it. But like, that was like very much like, you know, playing high school ball and then all of a sudden going to the NFL like that that place was insane like I got sent like a 30 or 40 page like resume document or um, uh, sorry a menu document before I even moved down there to study for all the different dishes how the preparation was for every dish where everything was sourced from the wine list the beer list the cocktail list that you had to memorize bar components memorize completely um, so my first weeks there were uh uh, very brutal where, you know, there were chefs who yelled and intimidated. Um, but I learned really quick. It wasn't like, because they were like assholes or anything. It was because they were working on a level that you had to perform to like, and anything less than that was not going to be tolerated. It just wasn't. So, well, and people know their names. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's not at their level and it's because of you. Yeah, yeah, completely. They won't tolerate that because these plates were like really complex. So, like it was the kind of kitchen you know where it's, um, you know, Michelin plates are very ornate and they're very put together well. They're, I mean, obviously extremely flavorful and delicious, but like they they wanted you to know everything about how the dish was prepared. Like any question the guest could think of, you had to know the answer to. So, I loved being there for that, like developing that kind of confidence in what I did on the floor and earning the chef's respect in that way. And, once you do that, it's like um, it's it's a really beautiful thing to like be a part of the highest level of execution of service with the highest level of execution of uh, you know culinary work at the same time. Huge so. sense of pride. I Tremendous. Mean, that's a lot that you have to yeah. prepare for, and then being good at it. Yeah, like I, I still look back really really fondly on like my time at that restaurant, and in the Oculus room we were in, I have Chef Murad's cookbook there, and um, I think it was a. Uh, Oh, I don't know if it was my birthday or if it was like Christmas the following year or something. Kyla got the entire staff I worked with to sign that book for me. So that, that book that's in there, like chef signed and like all my other people uh, that I worked with signed. And oh, like, that's really special. That's easily like my most prized possession, like in the world outside of my, you know, wife and kids and whatever. Yeah. So. <laughs> that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. What a different world. I mean, San Francisco is such a different world. There's just a buzz about the city and there's just something special and so amazing and it makes you feel alive to be in that. And yeah. so I'm sure working in such a high stakes, yeah. beautiful restaurant, especially like, did it get a Michelin star when you were there? Yeah. Well, so, well, I, I so even more of a bigger deal. Well, that, <laughs> and, that, you know, and again, like that's like one of, one of my biggest, you know, biggest regrets really. And like, you know, it's not a, a true regret because like it all worked out, but like 
one of my biggest regrets is I didn't stay at that restaurant long. Like I loved that place. I loved all the people I work with. I loved Chef Murad and like he's still a reference on my resume and like I still have his number and like, you know, I you know, don't talk to him very frequently anymore, but um, he's been a big like little piece of like my own career. So there was a yeah, there's an interesting um, kind of level of guest that I wasn't used to either working at that place. So. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I was only there for six, <laughs> seven months. It prepared you for us. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sweating, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank goodness. I did see the red carpet yeah. out there. So that, was a, that was a nice right. touch. As well, like all the management people I worked with at Murad um, are like huge like pillars for how I view my own take on hospitality now. And they're all like on my, like, you know, what I would call my professional loyalty list. Like these, there's a small handful of people that like, they ask me for anything and it's theirs. Or if they ever come here and visit me, their money's no good. Like they will get, you know, red carpet rolled out for sure. But um, I ended up leaving to take a job at a restaurant where I was gonna be like the assistant sommelier and help with the wine list. Oh, that's and huge. yeah, and it's on a mission. Yeah, yeah, so well, this place, like, um, I don't even remember the name of it to be honest with you. I'd have to look it up because it was a, a restaurant that had opened, and I, I literally was there for like three weeks, and then I walked out in the middle of service uh, one night because the uh, the manager who I was working with like did not have the same values as I had coming from Murad and knowing the stakes and the excellence at which we worked. I went to this place where it was like a bump in position, but it didn't take long for me to realize like, oh shit, like this isn't the NFL. You guys don't know what you're doing. Like this is not a high enough level of place for me to be at. And things like just came to a head one day and I like called Kyla and I was like, I think I'm going to walk out right now. I think I'm going to leave. And she was like, do it. So I, I, I like. I really want to meet her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, like I wasn't even at that place. Uh, I wasn't even at that place a month and and left. And I would never ever tell anybody to leave in the middle of service. Terrible thing to do. Um, but uh, I knew that they didn't actually need me for service that night, and it was going to be okay. Like I wasn't screwing anybody over hugely, but it wasn't a good move. Like that wasn't a good thing to do. But I did it out of principle in the moment, knowing that that was not the right place for me. Um, so I, I like immediately started the scramble for like looking for another job and everything. And, uh, I ended up interviewing at a few places. Um, I did a stage at Quince restaurant, which is, um, three Michelin star restaurant. Now it was two Michelin stars when I was there. And then I did a stage at a restaurant, Gary Danko. Um, Gary Danko was this really classic fine dining restaurant, white tablecloth. Everyone wears suits, crumb the table between every course kind of place. It was only a single star, but um, it was known for being like, um, well, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, again, like, you know, to talk That's about San Francisco yeah. and you work in restaurant hospitality, it's like, um, uh, that's Levels. the way people would explain it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, it's just a one star, but, but good for um, you. Yeah, yeah. But the, um, so the special thing about Gary Danko was that it was known for being an extremely service based restaurant. It was all about the guest experience. It was less about, um, the artistry of the chef. Um, the food was outstanding there. Very good, well put together food. But I kind of used to explain it to people as like Gary Danko was like, um, a spoon kitchen where like, you know, Things were plated nicely, sauced over with a spoon, what have you, but it wasn't a tweezer kitchen mm, where things were like yes. meticulously <laughs> placed in every little piece and, you know, again, like little squirt bottles with particular puree, like yes. things weren't presented in that way. So yeah, I, I staged at Quince, staged at Gary Danko, I got offers from both 
and I made the decision to go with Der Gary Danko. There was this kind of culture or this um, you know background of the restaurant of like of not only service and hospitality elegance and excellence, but um, wine excellence. So that's kind of what called me there. You know. Yeah. You found your people. Yeah, yeah, and I found I found my really really important wine mentors there, who you know I still know today. And granted, it hasn't been like a super long time, but um, but yeah. So I I got hired there, um, ran food there for two weeks, and then got promoted to back waiter. This was like the little ladder you, you had make, to climb. Yeah, make the stair steps. Yeah, um, I back waited uh, while running food here and there um, for nine months eight or nine months uh before finally getting promoted to captain then i was allowed to like be an actual head waiter captain waiter um did that for i think i think i was a captain for like three or four months before i got promoted to being a sommelier also and they were doing this thing where they were allowing people to be like hybrids where you could do a few captain shifts a few sommelier shifts so that's what i did for a while um and then eventually got promoted to sommelier and then one of the other sommeliers left and I got promoted to, to lead sommelier. Um, he did it. Yeah. So yeah, that was all great. Um, but again, granted, like, um, you know, you work in a place like that and like, uh, there's a whole lot of like the, uh, you know, fraud syndrome thing that happens where it's like every little step along the way, I was like, Oh shit. Like I don't deserve to be a captain here. Or like, especially when I started being a sommelier there, I was like, Oh shit. Like, I don't deserve to be a sommelier on this floor. It's like, like we an had, imposter. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hugely. Like I, uh, I, we had a hundred page wine list, and every major wine under the sun was on that list. And Wild. like, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about with a lot of the wines. It's like you end up kind of figuring out your own little go tos of things you would sell, or mm -hmm. you would know enough about a region or whatever to to make it, you know, to be able to talk about it in somewhat, you know, an intelligent way. <laughs> But like in compar comparison to like the other people who worked there, like I had no business like you know <laughs> being a part of that team. But you know I you think sure that's had the heart though. yeah. Well, I think everyone figures it out over time. You know, it's like everyone feels that way probably when they first begin, and it just is. Uh, it just takes time to get more confident and whatever. But um, but yeah, that was a that was a crazy place to be because like when uh, I remember when I got promoted to captain at Gary Denko, like I I'd told some of my Maraud friends, it's like oh you know it's been nine months. Oh I, I finally got to captain and. One of my friends was like, "Oh, oh, did did somebody die? Because <laughs> oh. because the thing it was that difficult. Well, the thing, well, it not it, difficult, yes, but like the thing was, is the captains at Gary Denko, um, a lot of them had been there since opening day one. They never left. And when I started there, the restaurant had been open for 17 years, and it was going on like year 18 and year 19 and 20 when I was there. And the captains never left. Like they they were there for forever. So it was impossible or it was in the industry with people who worked in other restaurants. They're like, Oh, well yeah, Gary Denko would be an awesome place to work, but you're never going to get to be captain there because nobody ever leaves and you're, you're, there's never going to be opportunity. So a lot of people kind of ruled it out and challenge accepted. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, <laughs> getting that this perfect. for sure. Like that is, uh, the name of the game here. He likes things. For yeah. 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 Oh, you think that's hard? Great. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. It was amazing meeting like the kind of people that I met down there. Yeah. Like, oh, I can't like the cast of characters. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm sorry that we drank all our wine. No, 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 no. Here, I'm pour another one for you. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, okay. what did we uh, just enjoy while listening to these awesome stories? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the first yeah. one I poured for you guys was um, uh, the um, Abbott Claim Vineyard Pinot Noir. So 
Um, you know, that's, that's where we're at here. Uh, Abbott Claim Vineyard um, is planted in 2001 by Ken Wright. Um, he, uh, he made an Abbott Claim Vineyard Pinot Noir for some years. Um, Beau Frères made an Abbott Claim Pinot Noir. Um, for the longest time, it was really just, um, the vineyard was a fruit source for a lot of other wineries. Um, 2006, I believe it was, is when um, Beck Family Estates started buying up some like the, uh, the vineyard that was around this original block that Ken planted and was a part of the Angela uh, estate label. Gotcha. And I guess Ken was the original winemaker for Angela and was making uh, wine from this fruit here. Um, but, but yeah, after seeing kind of the great work that like he was doing with it, that Beaufrere was doing with it, you know, they, um, there was a lot of desire to kind of start, um, our own label with, uh, with, to, to represent the vineyard. So, so yeah, this is, um, this is completely, you know, all fruit from this hillside here. Um, our winemaker, his name's, um, Alban, uh, W. Um, Alban, um, you know, is, is French, was born outside of Paris, um, grew up in the Rhone Valley, grandparents lived in the Loire, um, spent a lot of time in the Loire with them. Um, he went to school at the University of Bonn uh, in Burgundy and then um, got connected with um, the, the Druin family. So um, he worked to harvest uh, in Burgundy. Um, but yeah, he studied viticulture and enology at, at university and then got the opportunity to come over to Lamont Valley again with that kind of connection with the Druins. Um, yeah, he worked at um, uh, Domain Druin here for, as he is, I think he was, his role was assistant winemaker for a couple of years and then came across the road to White Rose and was assistant winemaker there. Um, and then ended up working for um, Chapter 24, Elite, and uh, Double Zero. He made the 2016 Double Zero wines. Oh. Um, and he's been working We're for... We're talking about them. heard about mm -hmm. Double Zero. Yeah, yeah, Double yeah. Zero is fantastic. But, um, yeah, and then, and then he uh, got connected with our ownership and started making um, the Abbott Claim wines in um, 2017. Um, and he, he makes the, the Angela Vineyard label, too, at, at this facility. But the Abbott Claim project is really what kind of brought him here. So... 2017, they, they, we have one wine from 2017 that we can taste later, um, but 2018 was really kind of like, is the first vintage that we're like pouring for guests and everything. So, so yeah, the first wine was just the Abbott Claim Vineyard 2018 Pinot Noir, really represents the entire hillside. Al Alban makes wines that are, he uses the word like freshness, like all the time, like he wants wines that are vibrant and light and fresh, speak to place, speak to terroir, have good vibrancy to them. Um, um, great fruit presence as well, but um, he's really trying to learn this vineyard, learn this land and really kind of bring that out in the bottle. So um, I think we're, we're gonna get more and more complexity from these wines as the years go by, as he continues to learn the vineyard, as he would say. Um, but this is a great representation of um, kind of this special site here. And, you know, we're in Yamhill Carlton, but um, one of the things that we kind of will talk to guests about is, um, you know, we're, we're on this little special ridge called the Savannah Ridge. Um, Soda right next door made a Savannah Ridge Pinot Noir using some of our fruit for, for many years. And um, um, the Savannah Ridge is just a really, really protected little zone of Yamhill Carlton. So um, great ability to not only have, you know, the additional warmth from the, the site, but also um, we kind of miss out on a lot of the like weather hazards that can come and go through years, whether it be wind or harsh pre precipitation or anything like that. So we're in this nice little nestled pocket of Yamhill Carlton that allows um, the, the character of the vineyard to speak even more. So, nice. That um, wine was really nice. 
Yeah, yes. great, great aromatics. Like, uh, I love how aromatic his wines are and um, good texture to them, really good structure. Um, it's still really smooth, even though it's fairly young. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and that, you know, uh, you know, I again, mean, like. We drank it all, we're like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it went down pretty well. Yeah. That's what it was. No, for sure, for sure. But, um, you yeah, know, I, I, I cannot wait to taste his wines with some age to them, too. Because, yeah, yeah like, they, they drink very nicely uh, now, they're very well balanced. But, um, but, but yeah, I, I really look forward to tasting them five years, 10 years age. Um, what, uh, what you guys have in the glass right now is um, the 2018 um, Due North Pinot Noir. So Due North is the northernmost block of our vineyard. Uh, vineyard. It was, um, it's all heritage from Clone. It was the original little block that Ken planted back in 01. Okay. Um, and elevation is about, it's like 400 some feet between like 450, 470, something like that. And the cool thing about it is, at the, it's, since it's at the very, very top of the vineyard, it's almost level up there, but it, it actually slopes uh, downward towards the north ever so slightly, like a couple degrees. So it's an interesting little pocket of, um, of the vineyard, but uh, it is probably kind of one of the you know, leanest, most structured, most tannic Pinot Noirs that we make. Um, so this is another one that I you know, love now, but will love to see age. And to the west of this little northernmost block, we have this fir forest, um, which um, kind of shelters that side of the vineyard really nicely. And because it's so dense during the summertime, uh, <laughs> I, we, uh, I did like a little vineyard tour when I first came on and the temperature inside that forest is like 10, 15 degrees cooler than like out in the vineyard site. And <laughs> when, uh, when you stand alongside the border of it, you get all this great cool air that kind of rushes out from the forest that chills down this pocket of the vineyard. So, um, so because of all those kind of things, like. Uh, this is the one time ever, really, where uh, I'll decant a Pinot Noir, and that's on Albon's instruction. Like, he finds that um, if we decant this wine, it will um, just open up a little bit more. It'll flesh it out, as he would say. So it just adds a little bit more depth to the wine. Um, whereas, you know, straight from the bottle, straight from pulling the cork, it can have a little bit more of a rigidity to it, okay. um, which gets softened with time and with air. And sure. again, we will, I'll, I'll love to see it age, but we, what I'll typically do for guests is I'll do a double decant. So I'll decant into the decanter and then mm -hmm. pour back into the bottle and then try to do that, uh, you know, a couple of hours before I would serve it for guests and everything. So it's been in decanter for a reasonable amount of time now, so mm -hmm. it should be showing, showing quite nicely, I hope. But. Yeah. So uh, the winemaker style, very French then, because of his history, very I would assume. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny. It's like, um, it's interesting to talk about winemakers and their styles and whatever, because yeah. he absolutely has French heritage, was trained in France, was trained in Burgundy. Um, but one of the things I remember he had said to me before was, you know, in Burgundy, you know, if you were to like go into the wine industry there, you know, you can really only work for some other like established house. Like there's not really right. a lot of opportunity to start new labels and start new wineries because it's all been kind it's of very divvied up. And, down yeah, <laughs> exactly. And not to say that it's impossible, but, um, but there is a, for, for him, I think there was a big desire to want to start something of his own or start something new or have full control and, you know, be able to make something his own. So, so yeah, I think he absolutely has a more old world focus and probably the way that he makes wines from a philo uh, philosophical standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, in terms of like saying like, oh, French style or old world style or whatever, um, I think he's kind of just trying to define his own style, you know? And, yeah. and the great thing about the Limit Valley is there's a lot of freedom to develop your own style. And we align People with Burgundy. Celebrate that. Yeah, yeah, hundred I mean, percent. They want they want everybody to have their own style. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I think um, so I think he's embracing that a lot too, 
to call upon what you know makes sense to him for the winemaking and making wine that he likes and resonates with but um it's funny it's like you know you you get to know winemakers and i think um it's like part modesty and then part um you know not wanting to define things too uh, clearly but like i think many would hesitate to say oh yep i'm a new world style or i'm a this style or that style i think a lot of times you know one of the things i learned at you know antica terra too is talking about like oh listening to the fruit and like you know learning you know what the vineyard wants to say so it's like it's almost like uh you know not it's like it's almost like not taking ownership over what's happening it's like you're, you're really just trying to be a vessel to you're allow the fruit to yeah you're translating yeah. You're, you're trying to communicate what the fruit is trying to communicate um rather That's than like right? take too much uh, responsibility or ownership over the final product so um i like that yeah yeah listen to yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drink me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, these are delicious Pinot Noirs. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you guys yes. enjoy it. Yeah, it, it, it's. I am excited to see how they age. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, it's it. Then that's one of the biggest reasons why I came to this position was like getting to be someplace from like the very ground floor and like from day one um, and getting to not only help build a culture from like a hospitality standpoint, but to like be around for like the first vintages, you know? And like, you know, when I'm here, you know, God willing, 10 plus years out, yeah. I can, we can think back to like when we first got started and open up 2018 and be like, shit, you remember that first year when we totally. had, you know, our first vintage here and it was crazy and whatever, but um, that is very see how the wine tastes now. To be, uh, what did you say earlier? Uh, you're in the fetus mm-hmm. or the yeah, uh, the infancy <laughs> infancy yeah <laughs> not, not fetus yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're not a fetus but infancy yeah. of this beautiful place baby. yeah little tiny yeah baby. our um our vineyard manager um his name's Heath Payne um really great guy I've, I've loved working with him so far here as well but um he talks about um you know and and, we, and as a whole as a winery we talk about kind of like being like stewards of the land and everything and the name of the winery, Abbott Claim, comes from this guy, John F. Abbott, who was like a stagecoach runner, Oregon Trail days. And they used to do these things, I guess, where like to encourage people to come out west, you could like, um, you know, establish a little property and like build a homestead and raise a crop. And then the government would like grant you the land. So it's like the little image on the front of the label, the little line drawing is from the original document from 1855 or whatever, where they basically charted out and drew, okay, here is your little square of the land. We have that original document too. And, you know, Photoshop magic got it on the label, but, but so we, we see ourselves or we take the responsibility of, you know, we're this current generation of stewards of this part of the land. It's our job to, take care of it and manage it the best way we can and sure we raise you know grapevines and we make wine but there's this whole other ecosystem that takes place on the property so um, our vineyard manager Heath talks about um, this concept called um, uh, ecotones or ecotones which is essentially basically like the little border between like two ecosystems and that little you know area in between the two that's where you typically find like the greatest level of like biodiversity is where these two little ecosystems kind of cross over. So it's that little border. He calls it like um, uh, like the edges or like the edge effect of like, you know, the edge of these two systems that come together. And one of the things that I know he does in terms of managing the land is figuring out ways to like, you know, cultivate the relationship there and 
do things that kind of benefit the whole property as like, again, like one consistent ecosystem, identifying that, yes, we have these blocked off, you know, areas for vines, but then we have these surrounding forests and we're getting a bunch of um, wheat planted at the bottom of our vineyard um, uh, that we're going to start developing. So it's about like, again, kind of curating and really supporting the whole property while also creating an agricultural product. But, um, but again, it's about land stewardship and really just kind of um, uh, being good caretakers so that as you know, we're in this generation, you know, X many years down the road, we can hand it off to the next generation with a little bit of data and a little bit of um, you know, added knowledge as to how to best take care of it from there forward. So um, that's one of my favorite things about being a part of like wineries specifically. I love restaurants um, and you know, would love to be involved with restaurants in the future. But um, uh, when you're part of a winery and a part of a property, there's like this element of history that you kind of get to like put your little thumbprint on and it's up to you to figure out like, you know, how you're going to put that print on or what that print's going to mean, you know, and how that will lead to the next people. So that's, that's an opportunity that doesn't really exist in the restaurant world, but in wineries, you know, there's this whole organic nature to things that can be everlasting, you know, not, you know, very similar to how it is in the old world where there are 11, 12, 13 generations and the people making wine from the same property and taking care of the same piece of land, you know? And this region is 50 plus years old and we're all in generation one and two and probably for some, they're just getting to generation three, but we're generation one here and I can't wait to see the people who are generation two, so. Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah, look at the spot you landed in, all that hard work. Kind of yeah. Paid off and you found a place it's, that you it, it, it's, want to be part of for 10 years. You it's know? so crazy. Not like three months. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we want to kind of continuing on the whole story oh, yeah, of things. Oh, you had to come like, back here at some point. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah, I was... When we last left Andrea, yeah. we were in San Francisco. In San Francisco now. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I can be long-winded and go off on a lot of different tangents. Oh, no. But, no, we asked you about um, the wine. That was not your fault. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, so I was at... So, yeah, I was at Gary Danko for... It would have been just about three years. But, um, you know, and again, like, going through that whole ladder of, like, having to start at Ground Zero Food Runner and going all the way up to being a captain in Somme and whatever... Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was late March of 2018 where Kyla's mom had a stroke, um, which was really, it was quite bad. And, um, she, you know, without knowing, you know, what was going to happen completely or how she was going to recover. Um, you know, we spent almost the whole month of April with Kyla coming back and forth between San Francisco and up here. And we made the decision to make the move back up. And the plan was always to move to San Francisco and move back. We were never really going to like stay there permanently. The whole plan was to go down there and get me some experience and some mentorship. And eventually we wanted to move back to the Lemmet Valley again or to Portland or wherever. And so this just like expedited the process a little bit. Like uh, we, we moved from San Francisco sooner than we would have, you know, normally. But, um, but yeah, after that event happened with her mom, it was um, important to us to be able to be available to family. And so, yeah, again, like, you know, my whole story is a lot of right place, right time. But... I started, you know, winejobs.com is the big site that everybody uses for job placement in this industry for the most part. And I started scouring that, you know, on a daily basis while working at Southern. And then eventually um, one day it was, uh, you know, hospitality manager position posted for Antica Terra Winery. And I like lost my shit because I was like, oh my God, Antica Terra, like 
I have to, I have to throw my hat in the ring. You have to at ring. least try, right? Yeah, because <laughs> at, at, at Danko, we had a nice little section of Lambent Valley wines on our wine list, and I probably learned more about the Lambent Valley working down there at that restaurant <laughs> than I did when I worked here, just from learning about all the other producers. And Beaufrere and Antiquaterra were like the highest priced, biggest selection, you know, nicest wines that we had in Lambent Valley. And that's when I learned about Maggie's Wines was, was down there. And when I, when I saw that position pop up, I was like, holy shit, like that would be a place that I would happily work for and feel like I was still like accomplished. So yeah, I, I got super lucky. And when I was reading through the <laughs> description of like that, that position, I was like, yeah, I'm like, I'm like 75% qualified for this. Like I was like reading through the bullet points. I'm like, nope, don't know how to do that. Don't know how to do that. Never done that, but I've done these things. So what the hell? So I got an interview and I interviewed with their general manager um, who just so happened went to the same high school as me. Um, and yeah, so when I interviewed with her, it's like, we like knew some of the same people and it was a nice little friendly connection. And um, yeah, it just, it just, it worked out well to where they, you know, after meeting me and interviewing, I interviewed oh, three times before they gave me the job. Like I met with, I met with her, actually, I guess it might've been four. Cause yeah, I met with her and had a great interview. It was great chatting with her. Um, then I had an interview with Maggie in Portland, um, which is a really intimidating, kind of scary interview. Cause again, like having learned about Antiquaterra at Gary Danko, knowing what it was, uh, knowing who Maggie was before going there, like it was one of those again moments where it's like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to sit down with Maggie Harrison and she's going to talk to me. Like this makes no sense. <laughs> like this is a you know it was a bizarre circumstance. So, um, but I had I had a great meeting with Maggie and I got called back down to do a little mock tasting thing where I had to interview with the current hospitality manager um, as interview three, and then I had the little mock tasting thing after that interview that afternoon. And basically my task was to pick, go pick three wines, any wines you want, bring the receipts, we'll pay you back for them, pour us a flight, pour us a tasting, share the wines, serve us essentially. So I did that whole thing, um, which went well, went great. That was a piece of cake for me. I was used to presenting wine and picking wines and putting something together that made sense um, from my restaurant experience stuff. So that went well. I was at Antique Terra for almost two years and um, was an incredible place to work. Like I wouldn't been able to do this program or get or get this job or have the vision for what I'm doing here without having the exposure and well, experience. How cool to see what Abbott Claim will do with you, kind of. Oh yeah. Guiding the. I know that the what you call it, hospitality building is two. Yeah, years yeah, out a couple still. years out still. We'll see how that all comes along, but it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful um, concept. Really? Like there's basically going to be three rooms for six tops essentially. There's going to be a room that has like a partial like open or outdoor element to it where you can like open up a big door and it's you know kind of fresh air kind of a thing um, that'll seat like 10 12. then there's going to be a show kitchen where there's like a like a chef's counter that can seat eight um, and then there's going to be like a quote-unquote like dirty kitchen behind it where like the majority of the real cooking gets done you know yeah. everyone will always feel like they're the only person in the building which is crazy so that's a um, cool feeling yeah just like the way that we'll schedule it and the way that we'll uh host like we'll basically make everything feel as individualized as, as possible. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and I'm so glad you said that because um, I'll tell you one of my nice favorite, um, yeah, well, so one of my favorite Gary Danko stories ever about everyone being a VIP was there was a time where it was in my first couple of weeks, I was running food 
and Phil Mickelson sits down at a table with his family. It's like him and his wife and his three kids. It's a five top table. That's Harley, pretty cool. Do you know who that is? And, Golf. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Not everybody always does. So. Yeah, check in with this one. Yeah, so I go up to uh, I go up to the I like run I run some food. I notice there's Phil Mickelson there, which with what looks like to be his family. And I go up to our manager. I'm like, Joe, Joe, that's Phil Mickelson over there, man. And he was like, Yeah, I know. And I was like, So what are we gonna do for him? Like, are we gonna send out something? Like, what do you guys do for stuff like this? And he was like, Okay, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna let them order anything they want off the menu. <laughs> And that was it. And he walked away. <laughs> and the whole point was that what we're doing is already special enough to where we don't need to do anything special because it's Phil Mickelson. We're doing the thing already. And that is the best we can be. Like, if there's something better that we can be doing and we're going to do that for Phil Mickelson and not for everybody else, we're, we're fucking up. Like, that isn't the right thing to do. Um, so... If somebody is wanting to come here yeah. right now, mm -hmm. is that yeah, allow? Yeah. I mean, I know totally. that it was super nice for us to be able to come in. Yeah, I know. We, we start with champagne. We have five wines that we make and pour right now. Um, and then I, I, I've been throwing in like a, another wine from another part of the world, um, which is something that, um, you know, Fun. they did at uh, Antique Terra. They, they do a lot of tasting or wines from other parts of the world. But here um, we're trying to connect things um, mostly to... Um, uh, like kind of like parallels, if you will. So it's like, you know, either other Pinot Noirs from other parts of the world or other Chardonnays from other parts of the world or something that calls back to like Albon's experience growing up in France. So something from the Loire, something from the Rhone or Burgundy, um, something of that fashion. So um, it, it gives you also, it gives you a great reason to, to buy other wine. It's like, you know, again, like we have that cellar space. It's like, it's going to be fun to fill that up with things, but we're going to fill it up with things that will connect with guests that I've already had. So things will get pulled off that shelf specifically for people. And I, I think that's going to be a great reason for people to visit, for people to come back, for people to recommend people here. Like, is yeah, that cool they're, experience. Yeah, and it's personalized. It's special to them, you know? I mean, and our wine is always going to be at the forefront of the story. It's like our, you know, the Abbott Claim wines are always going to be the star of the show. But um, it's important that at the end of the day, like, the guest is kind of the biggest star of the show, you know? And we just get to be kind of the supporting cast to that. So. That's why you're wow. <laughs> I'm star you're right now. Star. Finally? Yeah. All right. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but if you come here to taste, you yeah. will be wowed. The people that I have had, I've had multiple people already come back a second time because okay. they had, and, and bring people with them that they wanted to show it to. And, and I, I've told them, I've been like, hey, listen, like if you want, leave this part a surprise because it's super fun to you know, have it be a surprise for people, but then I'll joke and I'll be like, or tell them every detail you can. It still won't be as good as the moment when they get to like yeah, go through it themselves true. and stuff. So. I mean, I had no idea what we were walking into, but that's amazing. Yeah. And that's like no other place. I feel like I've yeah. been to quite a few places now. Sure. And I've never yeah. experienced or yeah. seen that something so like cool. that. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. You know, again, we're lucky to have the support we have. We're lucky to have this building and the infrastructure. I'll be really grateful to have the new building when it's built. Um, and until then, like, it's just going to be about doing the best work we can. So I'm, um, yeah, very fortunate. I 100% look forward to moving into a realm to where this department here um, can can utilize a chef. Um, I absolutely think wineries need chefs. I think food and wine is meant to go together. I think you you have a huge, huge miss if you are trying to run a hospitality department at a winery without a chef. 
part of what we do. It's all about, you know, the wine still needs to lead the experiences. You know, it's like you don't want the food to overtake things. But, um, but that isn't too hard to do. Like, I right. think, I mean, like, when you know yeah. what you're doing. When you know what you're doing, yeah. it's, it's not at all hard. But it gives a level of enhancement and a level of specialness to the experiences that you really, really can't get otherwise. So, that, and again, that's one of the cool things about this place is there's a big spectrum of experiences. There's a big spectrum of wine, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like there's something for everybody. Yeah. And it's like you were saying earlier, it's like there's some guests you might have and be like, okay, I know where to send you. Um, and that could be to a variety of places along that spectrum. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's like a scavenger hunt. You gotta go find, mm -hmm. you gotta find what you like. Yeah. You gotta <laughs> which is, yeah, which is super fun. <laughs> and I love doing that research. Because <laughs> here we are. Because here we are. Yeah. So we tried the Abbott Claim Vineyard Pinot Noir um, mm -hmm. 2018, and then we tried the Due North Block 2018 Pinot Noir. Um, we make a third Pinot Noir um, called Orientate, which is um, uh, basically, you know, call it a barrel selection, call it a reserve, call it whatever you want, but it's essentially like Albon's favorite uh, four barrels of all the barrels that go into the Abbott Claim Vineyard Pinot Noir. So um, we only made like 96 cases of it. Really, really great stuff. Um, that, that's a tremendous wine. Um, and then we do, um, we make two Chardonnays right now. Um, there's almost no Chardonnay planted on this vineyard. We just bought a property uh, in the old Amity Hills um, that will turn into um, pretty much all Chardonnay planting. Oh. Um, that's a few years out. So right now we source a lot of Chardonnay, mm -hmm. but we make um, a Limit Valley Chardonnay, which comes from Seven Springs Vineyard, which Evening Land owns, um, Ex Omni Vineyard in the old Amity Hills, and then, um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Shehale Mountain Vineyard as well. Okay. So it's a you know, vineyard blend, multiple ABA blend. Um, and then we make um, a single vineyard Chardonnay, uh, Ex Omni Chardonnay. Ex Omni is like um, the sister vineyard or whatever from uh, Ex Novo and Ex Novo, um, uh, like Walter Scott makes an Ex Novo wine. Okay. That's a more prominent name you might see, but um, but we have an Ex Omni single vineyard um, Chardonnay as well. Are you excited? Um, I'm very um, excited. Yeah, so yeah, my, my very first day here, um, I uh, had Albon taste through the wines with me. And, um, uh, you know, he poured them for me. You know, we did Abbott Claim Vineyard Pinot Noir, we did Due North, we did Orientate, then we did the Lambert Valley Chardonnay and the Ex Omni Chardonnay. So first thing, I was like, okay, we did the Pinot Noirs before the Chardonnays, mm -hmm. um, which is something I'd always heard about um, in terms of like, um, you know, other guests at Antique Terra or wherever had, had told me that um, that's how they had tasted in Burgundy. So I asked Albon, I was like, hey, I always heard about people saying that like, oh, in Burgundy, you know, you do it this way, you know, why do you do it this way? Or why did you pour the wines for me this way today? And, um, and what he told me was like, yes, like traditionally that is what they do in Burgundy. And the reasoning behind it is that, you know, Pinot Noir is um, fairly, you know, it's delicate wine, delicate grape. It's, it's, it's a little bit more subtle of a wine at times. So you want to taste that first because you want to kind of get all these little subtleties uh, to the wine. And Chardonnay, just, you know, even though it's a white wine and you would classically do whites before reds, um, Chardonnay is a pretty big white grape. It has a lot of impact on your palate. There's usually, um, there can be, you know, more oak usage on Chardonnays, you know. So if you have Chardonnay before Pinot Noir, um, it can impact your palate in a way that might hurt your ability to pick up those little subtleties in the Pinot Noir. Too much coating. Um, yeah, exactly. It, it, can, it can, again, impact on the palate for sure. And, yeah. um, and on top of that, you know, uh, when you end with the whites, um, which typically can be served a little bit more chilled than the reds, it can, and they can have some more acidity, more vibrancy to them. Like um, ending on whites is also kind of a nice refreshing way to end the tasting before, you know, someone would go on to another tasting or whatever. So, um, so when we talked about it, I, uh, and, he, and he poured them for me that way, I was like, okay, well, that's the way we're doing it in the tasting, so. 
Um, and did you say sparkling wine as well? We I, we do like a welcome champagne. Okay. Uh, it's not a wine that we make. Um, but um, one of the you know my little you know service jokes too has been like um, you know I mean champagne's a great way to kick off tastings just to kind of wake up the palate a little bit. But mm -hmm. I was calling it the champagne handshake because we couldn't shake hands with COVID. <laughs> so here's the best alternative. And so nice. I, I would greet people out front and pour champagne on a barrel before even bringing them into the building. So they like step out of their car and first things first champagne right here waiting for him kind of a thing so i feel like that's how i'm supposed to live my life yeah <laughs> yeah out of the car. step out of your car <laughs> and you are given yeah. champagne yeah absolutely especially so. if it's champagne yeah awesome this has been so wonderful good good thank you <laughs> yeah my pleasure please yeah um andrew has invited us to come back when things are more open uh -huh. um yeah. and so i've already rsvp yes <laughs> yeah. Wow, he's got you penciled in in 2021. So yeah, it's a pleasure to do stuff like this, and it'll be great to have you guys back to go through the actual tasting experience itself. Oh, this is wonderful. Well, I'm staying forever. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> La da da da. I know. You know that's <laughs> You know. <laughs> Gotta do a little song and dance for you, Sarah. But uh, holy cow. Andrew is the host with the most. Can we say that? Um, I guess we'll say it. <laughs> he was so fantastic. Thank you so much, Andrew, for hosting us. We seriously cannot wait to get back to Abbott Claim. So sorry if I don't send you an invite, but I do have a list. So shout out my brother and my cousin. Get ready. <laughs> All right, Carly. Uh, tell them how they can visit. Yes. So if you are so excited and cannot wait to get over to Abbott Claim, here's how you make a reservation. Um, you definitely want to call or email ahead. So uh, Andrew talked to us about emailing him directly, and that's kind of the best way. He will get to that the quickest, it sounds like. So if you want to make a reservation Andrew at abbottclaim.com. And Abbott Claim is A B B O T T. Uh, Thursday through Monday. And they only do three reservations a day. So you definitely want to plan ahead. This should not be a, ooh, let's see if we can get squeezed in there. They are amazing. You want to call ahead. You want to make sure and secure that spot. So do that. Uh, you'll be paying $65 for a tasting for this magical experience you don't want to miss. So definitely want to get in on that. Right, Sarah? Absolutely. Yeah. He also mentioned <laughs> for the industry folks that may be listening that he was open to partnership inquiries. So since they are obviously still building their hospitality space and that kind of thing, he, they're, they're totally flexible and open for pop-ups or partnerships or those kinds of things. So he mentioned that as well. He seems to be very open to um, working with people, making people um, just love their experience. So chat with him. He'll figure something out for you. Uh, it's all about the customer experience in his eyes. And so he will make something work. He was really willing to make anything work in every scenario that I threw at him during our chit chat. So I'm super impressed. He will find a way and uh, knock your socks off for sure. If you are following at Crushing It Podcast on Instagram, 
you will start to see a lot of super fun photos that we took while we were at Abbott Claim. And then some of the photos that you'll be seeing are from Andrew himself. And um, Abbott Claim is still very much growing and building their social media platforms. And so you won't see a ton from them. However, you can absolutely hashtag Abbott Claim and find Andrew on Instagram at andrew.dirks. Yeah, I think much like everything else that we saw happening there, they're putting a lot of time and consideration into figuring out their voice and what fits them and what kind of presence they have on social media if they if they decide to have one. So, yeah, I mean, they are thinking about every single tiny detail because that's the kind of people that are working there and I mean I love it. I love what they're doing. This place is going to be, can I say bomb.com? I know that you like when I say that. <laughs> don't know why you're trying to bring it back. I'm trying to bring it back. They are certainly um, going for it in every sort of way that they can as they build this beautiful empire. Yeah. And they're, they're working hard to cater everything to the individual. So instead of a traditional wine club, they've got an allocation-based mailing list. Um, I mean, they, they, they're all about you. <laughs> Not they just are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it <laughs> felt like they were all about me and they were all about you. And that's how they treat every single person that walks through their door. It's what can I do for you? What's going to make this special for you? And you're going to leave Abbott claim with the most picture perfect tasting experience you've ever wanted. Hey, that's a great way to end. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, keep emailing us. We're getting some inquiries. We always appreciate that. Our email is crushingitwv at gmail.com. So keep emailing us. We like it. We really like it. Um, And obviously, (laughs) keep following us on Instagram. Tell your friends. Tell your family. um, Check us out. We are loving the comments, the interactions that you guys are giving us, and it just makes it a whole lot of fun. So keep experiencing Willamette Valley wine with us, and thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Hey, to end this episode, though, I am going to include a clip that we cut out of the episode, which is Andrew explaining to me why I hate listening to my own voice while I'm editing. Yes. So, so I mean, <laughs> take it in, folks. Learn a little science today. Uh, disclaimer, we did not fact check it. So go ahead. So it could <laughs> not be science. Who knows? <laughs> so uh, you may have already heard this, but so you know why that people don't like to listen to themselves via recording? I do not. Uh, so I learned about this when I was in school for music and, you know, you should probably fact check this because who knows who told it to me and I could be totally wrong. But Breaking news. So, Breaking news. Here we so go. like your, your voice has its own resonant frequency, right? That actually vibrates your body. So when you hear it played back via another means, the frequency still makes the vibration happen. So you physically feel a weird little buzz or hum or whatever when you hear your voice played through something. And that's why people don't like to hear their own voices because it comes from this other place. And then you're like, what the hell is that? It's my voice. It's you know, in frequency with my body, but it's coming from over there. So it naturally makes people feel uncomfortable. Oh, 
Well, that's um, very interesting. Yeah. Science. So, so again, yeah, science. <laughs> but yeah, look that up to make sure I'm not totally <laughs> full of shit. But that's what I always heard because like, again, like in music and you record, people hear you know people hear that all the time. They're like, oh, no one likes to listen to themselves, and that's why it's because it has this weird frequency through your body that you feel physically. Interesting. Yeah, it's bizarre. Hmm, <laughs> yeah. 